Welcome back. Thank you for hanging out with us once again. This is the one and only IT in the D show. I am your host, Bob Waltonspiel, hanging out with producer and co-host extraordinaire Randy Walker. Guest this week, Eric Willie. You might know him as the chief information security officer at American Axel. You might know him as one of the hosts of the Great Security Debate podcast, or you might just know him from your local corner bar. But we're super excited to talk to him about everything security focused. We're going to make fun of sales guys, and we're going to talk about his favorite topic, AI. You can follow us online, itinthed.com, and do us a favor. Give us a like on the socials. Subscribe to us everywhere. Fine podcasts are sold. We are booked once again for Urban Rest. You can find us on, uh, if you want to meet us live, go to meetup.com slash itinthed. Every third Thursday, we will be there. Great beer, kombucha, food trucks, um, and we have our own little room. So it's a very cool atmosphere for all of us and uh, nothing but positive reviews so far. What say you, yeah, Randy? June 15th. Yeah, because be the, the first summer. is on a Thursday, so we get a it's a short yeah. short month. So it is. Uh, been good crowds lately, a lot of uh practitioners, a lot of re- couple recruiters, a uh, couple managers, good mix all around. So yeah, def- and a couple startups, uh people like new to the industry. So definitely good time hope to see you out there. Eric, how they treating you, buddy? Treating me well. Life is good. Never a dull moment in security. I was going to say, how do you like the the age old question is how what keeps you up at night or how do you sleep at night, but 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 candidly like how that like it never stops it never you know it always comes at you how how do you not have gray hair right now and you're not even that old yet? It's, I mean it's what we tell everybody going into the field that you really you have to be wired for it that if you're going into it number one if you're going into it for the money wrong um, that's not to say there's not any in it but it's uh it can be a rough life it's one of those things that. You know, that's why the question of what keeps you up at night is nothing really, right? Because we go into it expecting at some point that there's going to be long nights, long days. That's just what we signed up for and it is what it is. They say, I mean, you keep hearing nothing but there's a massive underemployment in the security industry. Um, is that like when you put out a wreck and if you need somebody, is it is it hard to find people these days? Because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to assume on your side of the fence, what's it like to, to hire a, a you know, technician on, in the security world. Yeah, it's so there's a lot of debate around that on are we trying to go after the wrong people? Is it just purely a numbers game that there's a, a shortage of people going into the field? And in, in all honesty, I mean, if we were to make the argument and all agreed that there is a shortage of people, I think we're to blame for it. I think we were, we were talking this, Dan, Brian, and I recently, that if you look at, and I think it was Forrester that actually had some good research that they put out, that essentially we're missing that kind of mid-tier of the security range because we create these astronomical requirements. You have to have 20 years of Kubernetes experience, and it hasn't been around that long, right? Right. We we create this high hurdle to get into the industry, then we can't keep people in, and then we're all, we're all the people. Why aren't they there? See, I grew up so in a, I grew up in a network server cloud world, right? I was selling cloud before it was called cloud when it was shared hosting. Um, and it's you had those tiers, like, you know. There was server admin one, two, three. There was net, server engineer one, two, three. Then there became an architect. And I feel when you bring that up that there those tiers aren't necessarily for for security. I feel like there's SOC and there's one, two, three. Then you get into like security admin stuff, but there's you know then you get into architecture and like the higher end. But the, yeah, you're right. That mid level. What what needs to happen there? Do they just need to re-tier what the requirement? Because I, I mean, I used to have plain and simple criteria for how to promote people, right? Do Have they done a project? Okay, now you're an engineer. 
if you're still doing tickets, you're still an admin, right? But if you're the best guy, you're a three. You know what I mean? It was really delineated. What is there? Is that just not been developed yet? So I, I think that still exists by and large. But the problem is there's so many different facets to security that if we try to create each one of those verticals in, you know, cloud within, you talk about AI within traditional infrastructure, networking, pen testing, SOC operations, it's just, it's not scalable. Team blue, like, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's way too much. I mean, if you go, just take a look at the map on all the different security certifications that are out there, all the different domains and think about, all right, what if we create five levels within each of those? That's, you can't fill those roles. And I, I think a piece of it too, that we're starting to look at the colleges that are turning out new employees and we're also saying, all right, you got to come out with a cyber degree. And in all honesty, I think that's doing a disservice to pulling people into security. I'll tell you, some of the best security people that I've come across did not come up through security. They have some type of other acumen that they were able to build onto, and then we could teach them the security mindset. See, is it so new in the education? Because when I was coming up, right, I went to college, started in 92. Oh, my God, I just tipped my head how old I am. Um but I'll be damned if we didn't know more than the teachers did. And they would take a history teacher to have us teach networking when I was 11th grade. And then when we got into college and I'm like, teach this damn class. Like, what do you, you know, I'm paying you. Um, right. Is security that new where that's happening? I, Cause I think like the Walsh's of the world, they got it right. They're hiring practitioners and they hire, you know, they built this, their own sock. But you know, when you go to like a Michigan state or, you know, even uh, the central or an Eastern, are they, you know, where are they getting their talent from? I think they're starting to get it. So it started with some of the smaller ones. So I think when I first went through at Walsh, they had just created, they were just becoming a center of excellence mm -hmm. there. So that's the, what is it? DOD NSA curriculum that were set um, on the heels of that. I want to say Ferris did it and there was a couple others, but we just haven't seen the growth at the, the bigger schools. And this is, I was actually having a conversation with some students at Oakland University recently and talking about this. And this is one of the questions that came up that, hey, if I want to get into the cyber field, do I have to have a degree in cyber? And the answer is no. No. Do pick something else and then move. We can get you into cyber. But I think if you want to get into leadership, I think if you want to get into managerial, I think if you want to get into um Get, get in a seat at the table, I think you have to. It's it's almost imperative, you know, unless you're a wunderkind and you taught your, and you can work circle, you know what I'm saying? And you know right. who those people are the minute you meet them. So I, so I just brought up a picture. And when you brought up the different layers of security, I had to see it for myself. And I know it's ever evolving, but it's the, it's the vendor landscape. Okay. Oh my gosh. Now bear with you must me. Have right? Bear with me if right now. This is going to shit. What's that? You must have a pretty big screen if you could get the whole thing to fit. I got my 27s. Yeah, go. And I got it. I got it. But I would bear with me. This is going to take a second. But you have, okay, network security. That's broken into four. Network firewall, network monitoring, in, uh, intrusion prevention, unif UTM, unified threat management. Endpoint security, endpoint prevention, endpoint detection response. Each one of them's got 20 to 30 vendors that are all in that space. You have application security. Uh, uh, you have managed uh, security service providers. You have web security. You have messaging security, risk and compliance, IoT, security operations, incident response. I don't want to keep going because this is mind-numbing. Threat intelligence, data security, mobile security, identity and access, cloud security. Each one of those has 30, 40 little teeny logos crammed into it. It's crazy. And it's... So basically what I'm looking at is every you have a rep 
from considering you're you're in a, you're a bigger name company being a you know tier one auto supplier in Detroit, you have a rep from every one of those companies that are calling you every week. There has to be three hundred vendors on this page. You get one of the greatest skills of a CISO is being able to manage a mailbox and voicemail. How? Finding creative ways to create filters. So I've had this conversation a dozen times before, either with different CISOs or CIOs or CTOs and whatnot. Most of them say, if you if you call me, you're getting started, you know, or it's, it's basically, it's in the toilet. You're not, don't even right. bother. And if you're emailing me, it's probably going in the toilet. Um, it's true. So like, I mean, obviously you have your friends, but like, is it all? And then here's the, my biggest thing that I hate more than anything. And you probably hate it worse is being put on a drip campaign from someone you didn't ask to be. Um, I, you know, Let's, did you get my last email? Have you received the email from two weeks ago? I would like to send you more information on. Um, the fact that you didn't respond to this email means that either you don't like me or our product's not that good or you don't work at that company. Yeah. It's, it's problem, almost so the problem is inside base inside baseball when you click it to delete it it shows them that you opened it so now you get put on that list right and it's this never-ending cycle i i call it of hell um me being in sales all these years i, I kind of yell at people i'm like please don't put customers on drips please don't do it please you know yeah we just we need to go back to the power of building relationships I mean, if you look at it in the CISO community, I mean, Detroit's a pretty close-knit community. Everybody knows everybody. But if you think about it in the context, I don't know if you've ever read the book Crossing the Chasm, which I love. So it, it talks about the different, you've got kind of early adopters of new technology and yeah. late adopters. I'm not doing it justice, but it's a whole spectrum, yeah. right? That if you find those CISOs that everybody's connected with, that's are those early adopters, connect in with them. And then if it truly works, it'll start to trickle out by word of mouth behind the scenes. When I was in the sim game, that was what I was trying to do was let's find the two or three loudest ones, give it to them for 90 off and then hope yeah. it works and then hope it works. <laughs> yeah, create a beachhead. I think I put that on LinkedIn once. It was like build the relationship, solve the problem or find the problem, make it business relevant and then pitch, then show product in that order. Like, you know what I mean? Nothing before it, you know, because again, if you don't trust people, I think that's the basis, the the commonality of it is, you know, there's got to be a built trust. You got to know somebody. Right. So, I mean, so let me, let me ask that is how much in, is it, you get all this thrown at you. What, what's your pro, are you going after like trusted peers and you're asking, what are you guys using for X? Are you doing five, a bake off with five POCs of stuff you like it? Cause you've been messing with it. Like, well, I guess walk me through the process you use. Yeah, so I would I would say it depends, right? So if it, if it's a space that we definitely need a technology in, then we're probably going to the traditional RFP bake off, going that route because we know we need something in that space. But I'll tell you, the the vast majority of us, there's actually a Detroit CISO Slack that the majority of us communicate back and forth, and it's just chatter behind the scenes. Hey, I'm running into this problem. Have you guys seen this, or what do you, what solution are you using? And it's just the relationships that have been built. Well, you know, you know, those are, you know, those are your peers. Those are the best of the, you know, best of the best. And it makes sense. Cause I'm again, looking at this, I couldn't imagine like just to, just to go through, uh, just to go through a SIM bake off and you have 17 different varieties of SIM, right? right. Figuring out which one is which, 
Um, and then kind of see now here's the thing I've been, I talked for a minute cause like zero trust in my opinion used to be the most overused term in, in data security. I don't know if it's, it kind of slowed down a little bit for AI now it could flavor of the month. Um, but like yeah. is anyone in your opinion, doing zero trust and like properly or any justice, I know there's like, it's more of a methodology than it is a product and people selling product, I think are out of their minds. That's just my take. You're hundred percent correct. Right. I mean, we've we've heard those pitches that, hey, buy product X and you are zero trust. You have zero trust. Right. And that's not the way it works. Right. It's a journey. Um, is anybody fully doing it that I'm aware of? It's hard to say because um, there's so many because it's a journey, because it's a mindset, there's so many different flavors of it with. And it all depends on kind of from a business standpoint, how we're each set up and the percentage we're into the cloud versus traditional, you know, in our world, traditional manufacturing, what we're doing on the shop floor. So it, it really, really depends. I think it's one of the things that got brought up today at work was we were talking about like, hey, they put this software in to find dead licenses and save like $5.5 million. And I'm like, you know, and, and they're, and now the buzzword is main. You'll hear it probably. You probably heard it a couple of times. Mainframe modernization, and all that means oh, nice. taking those old ass applications, modernizing them, and putting them in the cloud. But like now, it's got a marketing spin. Mainframe, well, yeah, mainframe modernization. So now that we've gone there, let's go to AI, because that's been you know all of a sudden November we get hit with Chat GPT, and in December my kids writing their term paper using it and. I'm asking it pro wrestling questions because I'm an idiot. Um, <laughs> and now all of a sudden you have workshops and symposiums and the vendors are all over it. Um, what, you know, is it as over hyped as zero trust was, or is, is this the new flavor of the month now going on? So I, I would say from my perspective, it is overhyped, I think, but that's, we tend to do this from a security perspective that all of a sudden something new comes into our purview. We go, oh shoot, we, we haven't researched this. We don't know this. It's the end of the world. So all of a sudden it's the worst thing ever. It's no different than, I think you and I might've had the conversation about when we went to cloud, right? Yeah. That everybody starts saying cloud, ah, it'll be the, you know, the downfall of everything. And it's just somebody else's computer sitting right. somewhere else. Um, is it, is it cool? Yes, it's, you know, this is one of the things, one of the conversations that we're starting to have within organizations right now, what do we do with it? What's the impact? And certainly we've heard it come up from the, the board level and, you know, from, by and large, what are we talking about? It's, I mean, number one, there's a philosophical debate. Do we truly have AI? Um, not going there because that's a, <laughs> a protracted conversation, right. but we're talking about big data sets and are we going to start seeing it come out in attacks? Sure. But the same techniques are being used by the, some of the same vendors that you just went through yep. on that list. And from an organizational standpoint, honestly, our biggest concern is the same concern that we've had with the internet for a long time that, hey, we have confidential and top secret data. Don't put it in a non-sanctioned <laughs> web application. That's all chat GPT is. Yeah. It's another non-sanctioned application. That was um, the only cool use case um, I think we talked about this too. The only cool use case I've seen so far is taking the massive encyclopedia, which is an auto owner's manual and basically digesting it into in a, you know, I don't, I don't know behind the scenes, but then when you chat and say, Hey, I need to know what, what's the light bulb in my, you know, in my rear butt light bulb. What's what, what is when I'm at, I'm at the store 
and it'll spit out what you know your parts or like if you anything that you would have to read you know you just ask it on an unneeded basis to me that was the only that's the coolest you know function or use case i've seen for it there's there's some i'm, I'm talking strictly automotive obviously because that's your industry too um certainly but like you know what colleges are going through right now i know there's like as soon as chat gpt came out they came out with anti-chat gpt um so if you do what we used to do back in the day, you change a paragraph and then, you know, it doesn't hit the scan. I don't, you know, I, right. You're right. You're nodding. Cause it, you, <laughs> yeah. If, if any of my professors are listening, no, it's actually, so it's interesting <laughs> with being in, in, in school right now, you're actually seeing different responses from different professors that you have some that I would say are teaching some of the more traditional acumen um, that are saying, don't use it, know the material. I don't want to see it come into the class. And then we've got one coming up that's on, on entrepreneurial elements and it's embrace it. This is a new technology, use it. But I, you know, I think the, the big thing that people have to <laughs> realize when using this, it's not infallible. I, I've, I remember watching a presentation where this thing, somebody was asking if it was a human, went through a whole long conversation it said it was a human from the get-go, and then later on, it denied that it even told anybody it was a human. So I feel like we've seen that play out in politics as well, but it's, <laughs> it's not available. I saw the meme going around, like the, I guess, I don't use it, but Snapchat has a uh, AI functionality built into it now. And they'll say, where am I? And it'll answer, I don't know. But then you go, where are some pizza places near me? And they're like, oh, Little Caesars is right there. Domino's is right there. So it's like, well, wait a minute. How did you know where I was? And it's like, well, I don't. And it has this like semantical argument back and forth with itself because it won't doesn't want to admit to you. It's kind of like the the RoboCops, you know, priorities cannot shoot Dick Jones until you fire him, you know. <laughs> but it's like that's kind of what they're built in with these ridiculous. I even asked, write the greatest movie script ever, and it won't let you. Like it's getting like they're programming it to not give out copywritten materials and right. Well, I used to write a blog called "Don't Be That Guy." I went on ChatGPT and I go write a "Don't Be That Guy" blog, and it did. So I'm like, all right, that's officially the last blog I'm ever writing because why why bother at this point? Because it, it's basically the same shit <laughs> it just took from me. That, that that's one of the interesting debates that we're going to have to have, right? On ownership on material that's coming from it. That if we're talking about either you know ChatGPT that's bringing us back the regurgitation of data sets or something else that's creating art or creating music or something, who actually owns it? Is it the inputs that are going into the engine or is it the owner of the engine itself? Yeah. And that, that you brought an interesting discussion too with art. Cause everybody's saying now draw Ric Flair eating a pizza in hell and the AI will make this amazing picture. And you're like, dude, that's really good. And like, basically it's whatever you're imagining. You know, like who owns that? Is it right? Uh, you know, can you even, you yeah. know, if we're going to be concerned on any of those technologies that are coming out on that front, um, way more concerned with the deep fakes and the capabilities that are coming out there. Um, some of the video that's coming out, if you look at some, who was that? I think they've done some, some with Obama saying certain things. It's, it's absolutely amazing and very hard to tell reality from, from creation. So you're a podcaster. I've been doing this for 10 years. You've been doing it, you know, pretty recently, but um, you can, I pretty much have said every word known to man. You can basically, you know, I've seen it already where you can type in something and it's using my voice and you can pretty much make me say anything. Um, knock on wood that no one ever makes me say something bad because I, you know, <laughs> but it, but it, that, you know, you're right with the politics thing. There was one I remember it was a deep fake 
of Biden, and they said that was the that was a deep fake. I think it was on Rogan, and he's like, "That's a deep fake." Why? His eyes never blinked. Like they want that was the one thing the deep fake didn't do was make him blink his eyes. And it, mm. they're like, "Watch!" And his eyes were just like you know Johnny Cash cocaine eyes, <laughs> never blinked. And we're like, nice. "Is that real?" You know, it's like, "Yeah, we're gonna have to deal with that." And then like, what does that do for Hollywood now? Because you can make look make Luke Skywalker like I mean, look at the last iteration of the Mandalorian when Luke Skywalker was on there. That looked really good. It's really well done. Right. And like, it's only going to get better. That's the scary yep. thing. So speaking of your podcast, you uh, you host a kind of a cool podcast. Uh, a couple industry vets. You, the Great Security Debate. And it's with uh, my buddy Brian Schneebly and then Daniel Alaya. Uh, um, now, what... When you talk about security debate, are you are you talk, what are you are you talking about the same crap I brought up earlier? Or are you guys like are you guys getting in the weeds? Like I, I'm sure with you guys being all practitioners, you're getting in the weeds. But uh, what what's some of the stuff you guys are bringing up? Yeah, so I would say it's it's all over the board. I mean, as we think about some of our topics, it's really for us got to be something that we're willing to take up opposing views. Now, is it perfect? Do we always do it? No, because there's certain topics that. Behind the scenes, we're all pretty aligned is, you know, where we kind of started on the hiring issues that we're having sure. with the skill sets, the what's coming out, job racks that are coming out from HR that doesn't really understand security. I think we're all aligned and we try to force ourselves to take different elements. But our whole thing is uh, we try not to get too deep in the weeds and too technical, really, as we think about the audiences. So this all started, gosh, this was actually pre-COVID at a, a Vanta dinner. The three of us, they allowed us to sit at a a dinner table mistake, mistake number one. Um, and we're like, wow, this conversation was really, really cool. We could do this more frequently and we could record it and we can put it out. And Dan just being the technical wizard that he is, is like, all right, I can run with that and, and create it and just kind of off and running. So it was really just our way of connecting the three of us having relevant conversations and then putting it out there. If people want to listen, cool. If not, we still had fun having that conversation. And that was the thing we always talked about with podcasting was, it's bowling night. It was a chance to get, you know, my buddies together. It was a chance to, we, when we used to do in the studio, we'd have a couple pre-drinks. We'd talk about everything, but, and you know, it was, it was just fun. It was like golf league. You know what I mean? There, I, people that think of it otherwise, like I'm going to go into this and make a bunch of money. Like you, you're doing it wrong. Like it's, you, you got to be passionate about it. And that, you know, I talked to Randy. I'm like, I've been doing this for 10 years. I, once in a while I get pod fade and I didn't think it would ever hit me. Cause I'm like the idiot that doesn't stop talking ever. Um, but like, so how do you guys keep finding topics? Is it obviously it's just, is it bar conversations? You're just recording them or, or is that kind of, are you trying to essentially what it is? Yeah. I would, I would tell you very few times have we gone in beforehand and picked a topic. Usually we'll spend 10, 15 minutes just BSing together. And because of that, something comes to light. It's either something that's going on that one of us is, is working on or some article reread or something. And that just kicks it off and it gets running. Or with Brian, if you mention auto, food, or there's a couple of topics that once you hit on there, you know you've got three or four days worth of material. My uh, my worst thing is when we talk about when I was a kid, you know, and we start talking about, I could talk for hours on Commodore Pets and 300 baud modems and what I called hacking, which was when you hit control run stop three times and it opened up the code. And then turning it to potty words and then resaving it and then getting the whole class in trouble in fifth grade. Like I could tell those stories. I like there should be a like an old timers computer show where just literally we're just telling those old stories. Like that one time I wrote a freak code program that wrote all night and I called the 248 BBS 
my dad got nice. a two thousand dollar bill you know um but like yeah i think reminiscing that's like i guess one of the great parts of this profession i'm, I'm hearing an opportunity there because ironically that's actually how i got my first job was uh connecting to the internet because uh at the time dialing flint and gosh i was probably 14 had no clue what long distance calls were oh. racked up a pretty sizable phone bill and there was a Definitely an angry parent when that bill came in and the words, you're coming to work with me. Okay. <laughs> yeah, mine was we uh the seven code there was like 18T employee codes when they went to pay phones. And nice. uh, we wrote a program that could dialed out ten thousand times, then it won the ones that worked. It just used random. The ones that worked, it printed off on a sheet of paper. Uh, we I think we took nice. it from the anarchist cookbook or some crap on whatever some BBS we found and you know, there was some script kitty program um you know so i, I gotta ask you a question like one of the things is we always got really involved in in kind of jobs and in recruiting and, and that was a big part of it that he back in the, the pink slip parties and all that let's say we got a, a, a i don't want to say a kid but like you know a kid that just came out of like the boot camp cyber boot came out of maybe the u of m has a really good pro, like a year-long program came out like i always so like my take is sit at the desk for two years, figure out what you like, and then certify in that stuff and then keep growing every two years, every three years, move up, move up or out. Like in terms of getting promoted, learning a new skill, gain, you know, and then I, I guess what that's my take. I'm curious what your take is like just to a to break in cybersecurity and B kind of how to grow within. Yeah. So I, I think the amazing thing about cybersecurity is how reachable it is. That if you look at the amount of material that's put out there that you can read, you can learn, you can do on your own. I mean, think about just take the pen testing side of it, right? Think of how many different sandbox VMs that you can download, Metasploitable or any of those that you can start just learning some of the skills and doing some of the testing yourself and building that, that acumen. And a piece of that, I think, is, as we talked about before, there's so many different facets to security you really have to dabble in a bunch of them to figure out where you want to where you want to play. Do you want to be on the DevSec side? Do you want to be on the, the pen testing side? And then once you figure that out, then you can start charting a path forward. And I, I think that's key because some of my the feedback that I would give to somebody coming up, you have to have some inkling of where you want to head, that we are a very open community that love to network, love to, love to connect, push people forward. But somebody else can't champion your career. You have to have an understanding of somewhere on your path, and then we can help propel you along the way. What do you, so this is the one thing I don't know. Like I would say, if you're a dev, make sure you come to the table with a Git that you can send to the recruiter and the hiring manager. If you're a, a networking person, make sure you have some like a home lab and Raspberry Pi and you're doing something cool. Or if you're a cloud person, make sure you have a, sandbox, a bunch of sandboxes that you, things that you built. But how about for now for security? Like, obviously, you don't want to come to the table going, well, I cracked into blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> what should they come to the table with on that side of the fence? I think I think you you really have some of the same things creating the sandbox creating technologies configuring technologies breaking down I think the it's less about the actual application or infrastructure you stand up it's more about the mindset that you did it that you created a lab that you built something I mean I've still got kind of a small server farm here that I'm spinning up VMs playing with different things I think it's just it's one of the best ways to keep sharp and it shows the you know as we go back to the mindset of technologists that are in security it's because 
We want to understand something to look at at a different angle. And I think as you start to build up some of those sandboxes and play with technology, it lends itself very well to really any path within security. So that was one of the things I had, I got called out on. I was speaking on a panel and I said, you know, at one point I was hiring techs in my life and I was saying, you know, I really want you to be engulfed in nerd culture. I want to know that you're doing something cool in your house. I want to know that you're, you're into the sci-fi movies. And I want to know that like, this is, you know, it's actually kind of a dot, dot, dot extension of your life, like what you're doing. Cause like, you're going to be happy every day. Right. And I got completely contradicted going, no, I want them to come in from nine to five and do the best job possible and plug out. And I, and I go, I kind of frowned on that too. And I said, you know, I, I'm just curious to what you thought. Cause I, you know, they said, there's no right answer to that. And I kind of, I, I question it, but it sticks in the back of my mind every, every day, because it's like, should I question my thinking on that? Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, and it's kind of <laughs> kind of how you opened up on the question of what keeps you up at night, right? <laughs> but we have to find ways to have fun in security because we know at some point there is no untouchable company. Let's, I mean, just all agree on that, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. So at some point, we are going to be spending a lot of time together going through something that just happened, trying to figure out how do we stop it and how do we learn from it. And Part of that is you have to have fun, build that camaraderie beforehand. I'm telling you, if it's a nine to five job, you're just not going to have the buy-in for the team. You're back to the just punching a card, slide down the dinosaur and out. I agree a thousand percent. You know, and that's the thing, Eric. It's like, I don't, like everyone always says, um, we don't want to be in the paper. I don't, just make sure like, like your boss or your boss's boss or someone that says, just don't let us get in the paper. But then we went back and we we were kind of going over all the breaches, major breaches that happened over the last five, eight years. Wendy's, Target, Home Depot, the POS systems, right? And not one of them took a blip in sales hit. And I'm kind of like, does it, is it really, no one's stopping going to Target because we heard they got hit because they figured there's a lot of smart people that just fixed it and they're going to be fine tomorrow. So I'm kind of like, it's this weird double-edged sword. Like, what say you on that? Because, again, I haven't seen anyone take a hit in terms of the biggest breach of the Visa. Like, think about Sony. Like, no one's taking a hit. Yeah, it's uh, ironically, that's actually a conversation we were having today in the office. They, uh, a buddy of mine, his wife, I think she was doing a master's degree in finance or something, but that she wrote a paper on that, that she did the research on the companies. Yeah. And, yeah, over the there's, there's short-term blips that we see, but over the long run, the effect is is negligible, if even there at all. But from my perspective, I think that a lot of that lends back to more of a U.S.-centric society in that we are fickle, right? You talk about zero trust disappeared. Why? Because we're focused on AI. I think the same thing happens in the stock market that, all right, we're past that breach. Or it might be the the mentality of, hey, my favorite restaurant got shut down because it, did, it p- didn't pass the food inspection. But once it's back up, it's probably one of the safest restaurants to eat at because it's under under scrutiny. Um, but that was like, now, Tyler- I, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think where some of that's going to change, though, and what we got to continue to focus on is internationally. Because as we start looking at some of the, the evolving privacy laws, uh, specifically Europe, I think, and some of their the hits that they're going to land on some of these countries or countries companies, um, I, I think they are going to truly do some damage to companies that aren't playing by the rules that they want them to play by, and I think that's is, that's where it's really going to matter. Well, that was a couple of things, and you know, talking to my security friends, they had their life got turned upside down. I didn't mean to Will Smith you there, but like when 
the you know the English the the GDPA or what I forget the damn acronym is that what it is the privacy the privacy laws GDPR GDPR thank you when that happened everybody had to retool everything and then when they got cyber insurance and then they had the mandated check boxes and then I got a calls from a couple of my buddies going dude I got to buy EDR who should I look at you know or dude I got to buy you know sim who should I look at and we're like <laughs> it's like some small tool shop. 200 employees but they for if they wanted cyber insurance they forced them to buy this crap so it's almost like are you trying to be proactive or are you trying to check a box you know yeah it's the uh the whole prescriptive security frameworks that are coming out of cyber insurance that are are not going to curb the field the way they think they are well that industry i remember we talked randy were you uh producing the show yet when we it was like the first guy that was selling it in town and i was just floor sounds familiar but and i was like it's i reminded me of my my buddy tad in like 96 where he's like dude the internet's like e-commerce is a fad the internet it's not going to take off and we're like are you insane you know and it reminded me of that where i'm looking at this guy going it's the dumbest thing i've ever heard of and now it's like a you know multi-billion dollar industry what the hell do i know so what do you uh what do you when you're uh when you're not going taking your you know when you're not going to karate when you're not uh uh, you know, work and you know, when you're not thinking about work, when you're not podcasting, uh, like what, what are you watching these days? What's good? Uh, Ted Lasso is probably number one. Fantastic. Isn't it? It's such a good show. Do you know what's um, weird? Did you is... see the backlash on season three online? I try no. not, to, I try not to watch or read anything. Apparently somebody was up in arms about season three and I'm like, isn't that the age we're in? Somebody's always up in arms about, about something. something. I know, I know. And I'm reading, I'm watching it, going, "This is the most one of the most brilliant written shows I've ever watched." And I'm like, "It's so well done." See, okay, so my thing is, six people bitch about it on Twitter, and then BuzzFeed picks it up because it's kind of controversial, and then they get two billion clicks, and then NBC will pick it up because the, it, that got picked up, and then now it's news, but it was really only six people. Like that's that's, right. that's welcome to news in 2023. Um, the uh, the age of professional offended people, <laughs> right? See now, I you're not uh, as old as me, but I grew up on Ultraman, and Netflix has a fantastic anime series, and season three just dropped, and I've not seen it yet. Um, so that's going to be my week this weekend is uh, to to catch up on Ultraman. Nice. Is that going to be uh, one of those binge moments? Get through all of them? No, because they don't leave them like it's. There was what did we just watch? Where like the last one, like got it. Oh. Uh, uh the the agent uh, night agent okay what i haven't they, seen that oh that's fantastic but they end every one where like me and my wife look at each other and we're like god damn it we have to watch another one like they they hang you they're so good at hanging you up at the last you know right at the end like all right one more we'll just go to bed at one we'll be fine tomorrow you know like that's what it came you know and we blew through it in a week you know nice you know that's the thing like we used to just watch movies now we have to watch 14 hour movies broken up into 12 episodes and and we want more. Give me more. That's that's what's what's amazing. I mean, think about how many different. Gosh, I don't even want to go through how many different streaming services we have. But all of them. we've caught ourselves a couple nights that we get through. You know, watch Ted Lasso, watch Succession, and I think Marvelous Miss Maisel's in there. And there's a couple others that we we chunk through those, and then we're oh shit, what are we gonna watch? Yeah, we have more content than we've ever had at any other time, and yet the dis with the amount of content we have because we can't find something else to watch it's just staggering did um did you this is a crazy stat blew my mind the the i love lucy uh documentary that was on i believe it was on amazon prime 
And the whole stink was about her checking the box that she was a communist. And the NBC crew had to like go on a apology tour and tell the oh, crowd because really? the crowd was beside themselves. And she didn't know. She was just like, ah, whatever. That was, you know, I think my dad checked that. I don't even know. I never, I haven't voted in 30 years. Um, <laughs> but he's, but the quote was that blew my mind was 63 million people tune into I Love Lucy every whatever night. And I'm thinking about that going, God, the Super Bowl only gets 22 or 5 million, you know. That's crazy. 63 million people watched a sitcom, uh, you know, back in those days because you only had five channels, four channels. It's true. It's a lot of eyeballs. Yeah. So we're absolutely. uh, That's why I I watched the worst movie I've ever watched. We're running out of so many ideas. They had to remake House Party, which was one of my favorite movies of all time from 1990. And they absolutely bastardized it. And I I was so angry. I actually went to IMDb and I wrote a one-star review. I The first nice. time I've ever done, reviewed anything like that. I was so angry. Like, I'll show you. Speaking of don't be that guy. I know. I was so angry. I'm like, worst movie ever. I was totally comic book guy too. Worst period movie period ever. So anyway, hey, uh, we can find Eric to gr- look up the great security debate podcast. We'll put it in the show notes. And uh, we sincerely appreciate your time and, and your uh, sense of humor and all that good stuff. But uh, definitely appreciate your time. So Eric Willie, American Axel, Chief Information Security Officer. Appreciate it. So we're going to wrap things up for this episode of the IT and the D Show. On behalf of Bob and Randy, do us all a favor. Drink up your drinks. Get your phone numbers. You don't got to go home. You just got to get the hell out of here. See you next week. Drive careful. Beat it.